Hello, and welcome to Barks Remarks, the podcast where we talk about the stories from the legendary Carl Barks, creator of Scrooge McDuck and writer and artist of the greatest Donald and Scrooge comics of all time. Join us as we explore his longer adventure stories in their chronological publishing order. We'll talk about what makes them so enduring, their historical context, and how well they hold up today. So get out your reprint and get ready to enjoy our remarks. Hello and welcome back to Bark's Remarks, everyone. I am still Mark Severino, um, a grown man who has managed to con some friends into letting him talk about his favorite comic stories in the guise of actually releasing it as a podcast. Um, Don't tell them, but at any rate, I am joined by my guest host, Ryan, if you can say hi to the good people. Hello, everyone. I'm Ryan Bailey. This is my voice, and uh, I am easily influenced by my friends. Well, yes, definitely. Um, So, (laughs) Ryan, today we get to talk about uh, a a favorite comic of mine. I'm I'm very excited to get to this one. Um, I've been looking forward to it for a while. We will be covering Bark's Ghost of the Grotto. This is uh, an adventure story that was published in July of 1947 in four-color number 159. It has, of course, been reprinted many times. Um, This one is 26 pages, and um, I I thought about it, and I would like to start asking you, the co-hosts, to give us um, your own synopsis of the story, since I do most of the um, narration. So let's uh, let's hear it. What? How would you sum up Ghost of the Grotto? Uh, so Donald and the nephews are um, struggling to harvest kelp, and uh, in the process of that, they and hear a legend of a kidnapping of a small boy that happens every 50 years. Uh, the ducks dismiss it, of course, and uh, later on in their harvesting happen upon a circular reef inside which they hope is an untapped kelp forest. Trying to get over the reef during high tide, they run aground on it and discover the sunken wreck of an ancient galleon. Uh, An octopus kaiju apparently lives inside the wrecked ship. Sure enough, uh, Dewey is kidnapped by an armored man in the night while they sleep on their boat. Donald and the other nephews find the armored kidnapper, who talks like a Shakespeare character, in a cavern inside the reef and engage in deadly skirmishes to get Dewey back or to signal for help from the town on the main island. They overcome the octopus kaiju and the armored man. Uh, The armored man is revealed to be the latest in a line of boys kidnapped and raised by their kidnappers to guard a chest of gold intended for Sir Francis Drake and Her Majesty. Uh, Donald is given praise by the town on the island, and the formerly armored man gets the ancient gold and some hamburgers. (laughs) Excellent. A very capable synopsis. Um, I like that you referred to the octopus as a kaiju. Um, tell us what a kaiju is, please. <laughs> a ridiculously large monster, like Godzilla. This is the octopus version of Godzilla. <laughs> yes, the octopus version of Godzilla, definitely. Um, that was great. Thank you very much. So, uh, a little bit of background about this story. Um, I, I didn't check into this, but to me it feels like Barks is kind of picking up his pace here because this was published just a couple of months after his previous pair of adventure stories. And this is going to be another of those that has two full-length adventures. Next episode we'll talk about Adventure Down Under. Um, but this one gets the coveted uh, cover 
for for this pair of stories for this issue. Um, there is a little bit of of, um, of detail in an interview that Barks did about this one. So in, in his words, he said that this story was a rare example of a tale that was conceived as a 10-pager for Walt Disney's comics and stories, the, um, the short um, gag story publication. And it grew into a longer story for Donald Duck. He said, I can remember the first idea I had on that was just trying to figure out something Donald could do. I thought of him sailing boats and came up with a potential 10 pages of gathering seaweed and selling this kelp, which would give me a lot of gags with boats. As I developed more and more things with the story, I think it's quite possible that the ghost of the grotto was brought in as a menace. There is so much in that. I couldn't have thought of it in a whole bucket full of writing at once. And I, I think that probably bears out in the story, Ryan, because this one does seem like it is a little bit of a sequence of kind of improbable things that happen. Um, but but for me, this one just really works. And that's going to gonna stem from the underlying kind of mystery structure that he's going to develop at the beginning of it. But before we get more into it, just a little more background. Uh, Barks was inspired, as he often is, by a National Geographic article about treasure hunting in a shipwreck. Uh, the treasure salvagers apparently cut a hole in the side, like the one that the armored man exits from. And they, they didn't find any treasure, but he was able to envision this and kind of run with it. Um, I noted that this is one of his titles that has a nice use of alliteration. Um, Barks is going to tend to do that a lot in his stories going forward. And uh, the, the very well-known editor Jeffrey Blum has called this one one of his landmark stories. I think that's because it kind of has that modest beginning that sets up something much more um, fanciful. As far as the value, this one, you know, we're in that era where these um, reprints or the original printings rather go for quite a bit of money. So the highest documented sale was in very good condition for this one. It's a 9.6 was sold for $7,500. And then Ryan, you know that I, I like to go into so, sort of the historical background or the geographical context for these stories. That's a big part of what interests me. So I want you to buckle up for 15 minutes about kelp <laughs> gathering. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Um, no, I, I'm not going to talk about that too much, but I, I did, <laughs> I did look it up and I did find it really interesting to find out that, you know, this is a real thing. This apparently is where iodine comes from. This is the easiest way to Even get today. Yes. Uh, apparently this is still the easiest way to get like commercial grade iodine. I happen to live near, uh, one of the, one of the world's premier, um, aquariums where I learned that uh, kelp can grow a foot a day. That's amazing. Uh, so if, if you want to gather a crop, this is a good crop. <laughs> yeah, so a little bit, just a little bit on the history of that. Iodine was first extracted from seaweed in 1811. This is something that gets used for a lot of different reasons, including treating some health conditions. Um, I also actually thought about the title and wondered if people would know what a grotto is. Do you know the like true definition of a grotto, Ryan? I don't think I do. I think of it as uh, like any kind of underwater cave. Yeah, that that's right. Technically, it's much more expansive. It can be really any cave. And I think the official definition says that it doesn't have to be, you know, underwater or proximate to water. But that's in practice. That is how we use it. We usually talk about like 
caves that are just underwater or, or right nearby water. So yes, the grotto itself, um, of course, is going to be the underground hideout of the armored man. So for notable appearances in this one, I've already um, name dropped the armored man. We don't ever learn his actual name, I don't believe. Um, there's no, no one else other than the ducks that's really noteworthy in this one. I've started to talk about kind of what version of the characters of the characters we're getting in these stories now. And to me, this is sort of the resourceful version of Donald. You know, he's very level-headed in this one for the most part. Um, he's very determined once Dewey disappears to get him back. You know, he, he never really loses his head in this one, which is not very typical for Donald. That's true. So we're going to go over our um, retelling of the story. And uh, again, as always, Ryan, feel free to chime in. But um, the this story opens up with a really cool splash panel and an explanation of uh, a summary of setting up where they are. They're, they're in the West Indies. And they have a boat. And as Ryan ably mentioned, they've got their own seaweed gathering business. So... The first page has them, um, it shows sort of their day-to-day -day harvesting kelp, harvesting seaweed. And what I found notable about this is that Barks really, I think, goes into some nice detail with the artwork. He shows us kind of the mechanics of the kelp gathering with the winch and the, um, the tongs or whatever, the, the pinchers that they use mm -hmm. to harvest it. Um, and they're just talking about their business in general. They're, they've been talking about how the, the beds, the seaweed beds are playing out and they're getting less and less. And on their way back, they mentioned that there's a lot of seaweed to be gathered in the center of Skull Eye Reef if they could only get to it. And so that kind of sets it up. They pass the reef. Ryan, how would you describe the reef? Um, it's, it's pretty small and uh, it's uh, a perfect circle like a donut. So uh, there's water in the center and water all around it. And then it's just this um, mound uh, that, that goes all the way around unbroken. Right. And they set it up so that whatever is in the middle of that, you know, you can't really access at all. And they know that there's a ton of kelp in the center. There's a really neat little sight gag that Barks has of a very dizzy bird on the winch that Donald is turning. <laughs> um, I, I like to note that Barks really likes these sight gags, and I think that they're starting to become a little bit more common as he goes. All right. And I'm sitting here looking at it. I didn't even notice the bird. <laughs> yeah, and, and keep an eye out for these sight gags because, again, um, he, he really does have a lot of fun with those. And then, um, you know, a, a lot of people would say that Don Rosa is, is kind of the spiritual successor to Barks. There, there are a lot of people who would probably take issue with that, but... Um, he did a lot of sequels to these stories, and he kind of carries that tradition on and um, maybe expands on it. Um, so on the next page, you know, the ducks kind of write off the possibility of getting the kelp from Skull Eye Reef, and they head back to the island that they seem to be headquartered from. And um, I, I want to take a, a brief moment to kind of acknowledge that the island that they're on it's, it's a really interesting place, right? Because Barks goes out of his way to depict this very like multicultural mix, like a melange of accents. There's some like Caribbean accents and some French um, or Cajun accent 
and some like Mexican or Spanish. And there's a guy who looks very Brit. So the, the reason that I really wanted to go out of my way to highlight that is that we're about to enter into a series of stories many of which are all-time classics, but um, we, we kind of also happen to be heading into sort of a rough patch as well, where there are going to be some pretty unfortunate depictions and, and caricatures. So I did want to highlight that Barks is very capable of, you know, depicting this kind of, um, this kind of setting, and I liked that a lot. But um, the, the interesting thing, the ducks are really focused on their, their job, and what they're trying to do with the seaweed. And they don't notice that all in the background, there are these like very ominous rumblings, people talking about uh, a really terrible event that would means that everyone is, every conversation is about the need to keep their children locked up somewhere safe. And it's very ominous. Tonight is the night. They repeat that a couple of times. Tonight is the night, Franchi. One man says to another, tonight, Bane the night, Tony, another says, and we're going to want to remember that line. Um, and so by the end of this page, Donald has come to terms with the fact that, you know, the only way to get this kelp is the dangerous way, which he's motivated to. I didn't mention that they, they learn that the price of kelp has shot up yet again. I also noticed uh, how he seemed to make a point of where, like, everybody's from a different country, kind of. I, the guy the guy who's kind of tying them up when they reach the dock seems kind of American to me. And then we have a French accent, a Spanish accent, this guy in a pith helmet, this guy with a kind of a sombrero-looking thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it felt very naturally multicultural. All right, so... On the next page, um, the ducks are talking about their plans to go out and some old um, sea hand, a sailor at the dock overhears them and he, you know, he's, he's aghast. He's asking Donald, you know, you're not planning to leave your kids unguarded tonight, are you? Donald has no idea what he's referring to and he tells him, but, but tonight, matey, tonight is the night. So we're getting this ominous through line again. And, and he reveals that uh, the reason everyone is talking is that uh, tonight is the night that somebody's little boy will be stolen. And Donald very naturally wants to get some more information about this. Um, and he, he pumps him for information. And the guy, just every question Donald asks, who's doing it? Why? Um, why tonight? He keeps responding, nobody knows. And, you know, Donald kind of writes him off. But another old salt, another sailor comes up and, and comes to clarify more information. Um, he's got a bit of a, an accent that may be Caribbean or, um, or Latino of some kind. All I know is that when I was seven and I read, you have not heard of Eats Mystery, I was confused. I didn't get that it was Its Mystery. I thought there was something <laughs> called Eats Mystery. Uh, yeah, the first guy, the first guy has uh, like a pipe and a cap, feels like, uh, feels like Newfoundland or Maine or something like that uh, <laughs> of uh, an old, you know, sea. Yeah, he looks like a guy, ready cod some... fisherman or something. Yeah, there you go. And then the, the last guy looks, uh, he has some stripes on his sleeve. He looks like maybe a captain or something. Yeah, like you say, everyone looks like they're from somewhere else on this Caribbean island. All right, so um, this this second guy, he does a better job of explaining. He um, tells about the kind of the curse, really, of this island, is that every 50 years on this night, 
a little boy has been stolen and is never seen again. Um, this is, that's happened seven times since the centuries when the first one disappeared. And, you know, Donald rightfully is like, well, man, you need to do something about it. And he explained that their, their way of doing something about it is locking their little kids up and watching them carefully. Um, and Donald is not concerned because he tells them, you know, no one's going to come for him out on Skull Eye Reef where we're going. Um, before the ducks take off, one of the nephews asks if there's ever been any clue about who's doing the stealing. And the, um, the old sailor explains that the only clue from a long time ago was a footprint of an armored man. And, uh, you know, this is a moment of surprise for the nephews as they wonder, you know, are there knights in these indies? And uh, one of the nephews makes the comment that knights haven't been seen, armor hasn't been worn around here since the days of the galleons. And I liked that Barks kind of snuck that in to foreshadow a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, uh, I had a, a, like a Wikipedia Brown moment on this, on this page, thinking, you know, what, what is the difference between a footprint of an armored foot versus like a boot? If you had like a horse riding boot, oh, yeah. would that look different in the mud? <laughs> so, or maybe there could be a some impression in the in the metal by the the crafter, right? Smithed it. Yeah, maybe Her Majesty's seal or something like that. So the interesting thing between these two pages to me is that now we're leaving this island, and the rest of this story is going to take place almost entirely on Skull Eye Reef. You know, it's not not quite a bottle episode, but it is really. Um, interesting to me that he's able to get so much out of this setting because the ducks return to the reef um, and by the time they get there it's high tide and uh, this has kind of transformed the reef because the little peaks of it are just poking out as though it's like a little um, chain a circular island chain and they um, they see some channels that have been formed that almost look big enough to float back into donald picks one to try and, um, you know, feels lucky, and they, they basically let a wave pick them up and deposit them with a big thud halfway onto the reef, far enough that they can manage their winch, their, their pinchers, to get in and gather the kelp. Yeah, yeah. So um, I would have been pretty concerned about that, but apparently Donald does not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially with a rental boat. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but man, he really wants that, that uh, wants that uh, reef kelp. Yeah. Good stuff in there. <laughs> yep. And, and I... that extra dollar a ton. <laughs> I wanted to kind of highlight the two panels that, you know, where the boat gets lifted. Um, I think the water rushing past the boat looks really neat. And then the, the thud that they land with is really well drawn. I, I like that a lot. So, yeah, yeah, you can kind of see the, the waves splashing up above the, the gunnels there, and uh, uh, there's definitely some force happening here. Right, yeah, I think it, I think it conveys that movement really well and the, the weight of the boat. So on the next page, um, they're, they're on their merry way. They are um, getting as much kelp as they possibly can. Um, the nephews are enjoying singing a, a version of 15 men on the dead man's chest. It's 15 barnacles on the captain's chest. And then as the tide goes down, they start to see a little bit more in the interior of the reef, and they um, get a, a really big pile. They get their tongs onto a big pile of kelp and try to, quote, yank the whole mess aboard. 
and they see something underneath the pile of kelp. And it's revealed to be part of a ship. So the ducks proceed to yank more and more of the kelp until we cut to a panel at the bottom of this page. Um, and they've cleared it and they see that the ship is, uh, Donald says it's an old galleon. And one of the nephews says, or it's a British man of war, pointing out the gun ports. No, I think it's I think it's pretty cool uh, the way uh, you know we're kind of escalating. We've already gotten a little bit of the mystery, but now we're escalating the uh, you know what what's going on here uh, and uh, kind of setting up our the conditions of the bottle that we're going to be in for the rest of uh, the rest of the issue. Yeah, definitely. I think there's some really good sort of table setting here. Um, and I, I want to really note that this is just, to me, this panel is gorgeous. The way he's drawn this old ship, it, it's half sunk and it looks uh, very detailed, as does the reef. I think this one um, would be instantly recognizable to longtime Barks fans as a very beautiful panel. Um, and then, of course, we're going to realize that it is the nephew that's right that it must be a British man of war based on the nationality of the armored man that we haven't met yet. Mm -hmm. All right, so on the next page, um, they decide to uh, explore the ship, and uh, Donald takes a raft over, um, hops onto the deck, which is revealed to be rotten immediately after a nephew warns him he crashes through into the hull. Um, the nephews toss him a line, and Donald screeches uh, down in the hold, and as he's pulled up, an immense octopus tentacle or arm snakes up after him, and tentacles from the ship indicate that there's just a massive octopus in there, and one of the nephews says a great line, Ye cats, is all that one octopus? This is at least the third point in the comic where they use some some phrase that I've never heard anyone use before. <laughs> and I can't tell how much of it is is um, Disney corniness and how much of it is how people actually talked back then. Yeah, I think it's a little of column A and a little bit of column B. I mean, some of these are just kind of like 40s and 50s speak. But um, if <laughs> growing up at this time, this... This is like almost my word balloons, right? I would have mentally said ye cats to myself a couple of times a week because I was so steeped in reading these Barks stories. So I was a kid in the late 80s and, and uh, early 90s with this kind of like mental vocabulary. So we've got kind of th this other background menace now set up with this giant octopus. And on the next page, you know, the ducks acknowledge that, OK, we're not obviously we're not exploring that anymore. And uh, night falls, and there's just a generally creepy vibe for the ducks on the boat as they get ready to go to bed. The nephews have kind of talked themselves into feeling spooked because earlier in the day, of course, they heard all this tale of the ghost kidnapping kids, and then they've just encountered this weird ship and the octopus. So they're rightfully creeped out. Um, and then we transition to a couple of really nice nighttime panels drawn in silhouette of the um, of the shipwreck. And Barks, in a, in a narrative box, he says that the moon rides once more above the hull of the ancient man of war. And we cut to the deck where the door creaks ominously open. And indeed, an armored man steps out of it and says, Tonight is ye night. 
And uh, this is another just really, to me, it's a stunning panel. I, I love the slow setup of this and the ominous creak of the door and the way that he's drawn and realized and the way that the moonlight glints off of his armor and his sword is uh, very memorable to me. Yeah, and the, uh, his face is still uh, totally obscured except for um, his eyes. Uh, as we know, cartoon characters' eyes are always visible, even in the dark. So uh, so we're still getting uh, some mystery here. You know, he's, he's spoken and he's appeared, so we know he's not just a story uh, that the islanders tell themselves. Um, but uh, we still don't know anything about even, like, what kind of animal he is, necessarily. Also, it wasn't until this reread, just now, as we're doing this podcast, that I noticed the scowl on the moon's face as the moon is rising above. Yeah, that's right. And, and that one I've seen mentioned in a couple of write-ups. Barks usually kind of, um, you know, avoids these, like, sillier sight gags during serious moments, but it is a little moment of, of levity during this kind of creepy moment. And I wonder if he, like, talked himself into it because... This is a very a deeply creepy story, right? Like, this is a, a generational sort of kidnapping. And so, you know, I don't know. Maybe he was just having some fun with it, or maybe he wanted to defuse it a little bit. So um, on the next page, it's now the crack of dawn, and the ducks are getting ready for the day's business. They've got to get the ship ready to float back at the right tide again. Donald is giving orders to his nephews on how to get ready. Um, we get some pretty good nautical speak here. You know, he instructs Huey to start the engine, Louie to oil the winches, and then Dewey is told to stand by the capstan and keep the anchor chain strumming. I don't think I could tell you what that means. And then um, Dewey does not respond, and, you know, the audience has immediately figured out that he must have been taken, but um, Donald is searching for his, his lazy nephew until one of the nephews thinks to step off the boat onto the little, um, you know, atoll or uh, part of the reef that they're on, and he sees the tracks of an armored man. Uh, again, I noticed uh, as, as we get the caption... The first crack of dawn, it shows the sun just below it rising above the water with the word crack. Yes. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. That's another of those kind of noteworthy sight gags that's always cited in this. And uh, it's just another little fun moment of levity. There's also a, a pretty funny looking bird again in the background. I'm, I'm figuring out doing these rereads now and really focused on the art that Barks just loved to draw birds, or at least during this era. Yeah. That's that's evident. The man likes some birds, and he likes some uh, nautical terminology, as you've noticed. Right. <laughs> All right, and so on the next page, you know, Donald has instantly clocked that uh, something's wrong. There might be something to the kidnapping story. So, um, you know, they follow the tracks as far as they can, but they disappear into the waves. It's been erased. Um, and then Donald uh, very sensibly says that, you know, he must have been taken back to the island because, like, what other alternative really would there be? Um, but one of the nephews wonders if the armored man could have come from the old ship. Donald points out that, you know, most of the time that's completely underwater. And the nephews, rightfully, for kids who have just, you know, realized one of their brothers is missing, wonder if it's a ghost. And um, Donald says, you know, Fooey, he had to come from the island. They're going to go back and uh, tear the place apart. 
And then one of the nephews catches that they can't go back because a large hole has been gouged in the ship, and it might have been caused by a sword. And Donald says, we're trapped in this bottle episode until we resolve the conflict. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't really say that. It was implied. It was implied. Absolutely. (laughs) All right. So, um, Um, yeah. So we're just uh, getting some some good clues. The footsteps that go down to just below the surface of the water and then disappear. That uh, either his tracks were washed away or that was his destination. Right. Exactly. So the ducks are realizing that they're pretty well stuck. And Donald is getting more nervous about, you know, the possibility that maybe it is a ghost. He doesn't really know what's going on, Um, but he is continuing to keep a pretty level head. You know, his next move is to radio the news to port and get help as quick as possible. And then he realized that the um, wires have been stripped off of the radio. And, you know, the line there, he says, that iron-plated crook stripped the wires off the radio. There's a couple of other moments in the, on this page where he's starting to use some pretty funny nicknames for, um, you know, he doesn't really know anything other than that he's an armored man. He says that um, a guy that runs around in tin pants in a hot climate like this is capable of anything. And, and that was something that I picked up on this reading. He's got some pretty amusing expressions for, for the armored man. But he, he, they figure that he's probably, the, the man probably used the wires to tie up Dewey. So his next step is to ask uh, Huey to light some signal rockets. And he figures out that they were in the hold, which has been completely flooded with water. Yeah, so... Um... Uh, I like, I mean, this page seems to be just um, plugging plot holes. I'm just like, well, why didn't they just, uh, why don't they just radio for help or whatever and or send some rockets or whatever? And the fact that he probably used the, uh, I would have thought, you know, a soldier from uh, 400 years ago certainly wouldn't know to destroy their radio so they can't get help. Um, but uh, if he's just looking for something long and, and durable to uh, tie his uh, kidnapping victim up with, then uh, that makes sense. Yeah, I agree with you. I think this this page showed some care in that co- sort of, uh, as you say, why didn't they this? Why didn't they this? And a lot of creators um, don't always take the time. And in some b- stories, Barks doesn't really take the time to kind of explain potential plot holes like that. All right, so their, um, their next best hope then, because they're logically going through their options, is to light a signal fire. So Donald says they need to go to the highest um, ridge on the reef and he tells the nephews to light it there and the nephews discover that there is a hole in that one and um, one of the nephews says that it sounds hollow like there's a big cavern underneath or if you will maybe a grotto and Donald is skeptical but the nephew says well I'll yell down in the hole and you'll hear it echo and so he he yells hello this is Louie and they hear hello, this is Dewey, and there's a a fun moment where the ducks all simultaneously um, lean in and clonk their heads together, and I thought it was a nice touch that they didn't really even express any pain from that. It's a good gag, but it just shows that they're really interested, uh, focused on getting him back. Yeah, Uh, I'll also point out uh, for the listeners uh, that the highest point on the reef is probably 10 to 15 feet high. It is not an impressive peak. (laughs) Will make very little difference, but um, yeah, that's uh, good clarification. Yeah, I like uh, I like that the echo um, the echo they expected was different. It was a nice touch. 
such. Yeah, I, I thought that was a really good gag. All right, so they are they are figuring more and more stuff out. Um, they they know now where he is, and you can kind of see them audibly uh, exhale a little bit because they know that he's okay, and they so they start to plan how they're going to get down there. Um, he when when he has tried to tell them, you know, the situation, um, his voice gets muffled because the armored man has clearly clamped it shut, his mouth shut, and uh, they decide to search the reef for another entrance, thinking that there's got to be a hole that's above the tide line. Um, but they're not able to find one, so Donald says that they're going to make an entrance out of this one, and they're going to use their tongs on their boat to just yank the entrance open. Uh, and Donald um, closes by saying, if you can get the tongs into old tin pants, we'll yank him out of there too. Which I thought was an awesome line. This is part of the uh, ingenuity that you pointed out uh, at the beginning of the episode, where they're using the resources that are available to them. We're getting, you know, the clever Donald, and he's very determined and very um, resourceful and level-headed right. in the crisis here. All right, so by, by the afternoon on the next page, they've expanded the hole enough to get down. And, um, you know, the kids are wondering what he's planning on doing when he's lowered. They ask him, you know, you're not going in there unarmed. And Donald has, a, he's got a shotgun, um, which he calls a 12-gauge can opener, so that I can make a dent in that tin of medieval sausage. And I just, I love that line. Almost all the lines on this page are great. Um, you know, they're, they're pretty nervous. They say that this is pretty risky. Um, I like how determined Donald is here. He says, I don't care if there's a foundry full of Sherman tanks, I'm going down. And then there's a sequence where he, um, he says, lower me boys, as he gets lowered by a line into the hole. And then when he gets down to the bottom of the hole, he sees uh, the armored man is lighting an old cannon aimed directly up and he yells, hoist me boys. And he narrowly avoids the cannon fire. Um, and, you know, they've got to figure something else out. And, and again, this is just a great gag. It's, it's uh, exciting. It's funny. It's very well drawn. And in the last frame, Donald refers to the armored man as old boiler breaches. Oh, yeah. Another, another excellent nickname. Thank you for catching that old boiler breaches. And unfortunately, Donald has uh, dropped his um, 12, 12 gauge can opener uh, as, he, as he was clambering back up for his life. That's right. So yeah, he, he, um, the nephews, he reminds the nephews that, uh, they still need to light that signal fire, but, um, the man douses it because he can reach it from here. And, uh, you know, this is like about the first time where Donald loses his temper. Um, pretty impressive for Donald Duck. And, uh, he, <laughs> we've got another excellent nickname here. He says, that's not fair. Come out of your hole and fight, you cast iron gopher. Um, and, and this is the nephews, the two nephews turn to kind of have a nice level head. They've got a really great plan here. They logically say, you know, he's, he's really nervous. Um, he's scared about them bringing in reinforcements. So what they want to do is they want to light a signal fire much farther away, one that's going to draw them out, draw him out, and then they'll try and grab him with the tongs. Um, and before, as they're lighting the signal fire, they see that the tides come out again and the old ship is now showing. Yeah, and I, and I think they have learned at this point that it's not uh, a whole uh, a whole swarm of armored men, as one of the nephews uh, speculated. Right, yeah, they know they've got a solitary opponent, so 
Um, they've got the upper hand on him as long as they can keep their head. All right, so um, this, this story takes place over just a couple of days. We see a nice clear passage of time. We get nightfall once again, and the ducks are just staring at the hole because they figure, Donald at least figures, that you know that's the only way he can get out. Um, and one of the nephews is skeptical because he thinks he heard a creak on the old ship, but Donald is like, nope, only the hole, stare, stare at the hole. Um, we see the armored man is exiting from the ship, and we see him take a little boat out through a swinging door in the man of war. And uh, he uses some of that old English speak, that sort of Shakespearean, faux Shakespearean, with my trusty blade I must sally forth. And he says, Bonnie Queen Bess will knight me for this knight's work. Um, Bonnie Queen Bess is a nickname for Elizabeth. And so that's how we, are, we can be pretty sure that he's British. And so Donald again says, keep watching uh, in front of us. And we get this pretty famous scene of the knight boarding the ship, very menacingly wielding his sword behind the ducks. Um, this was used for the cover. Um, that Barks did an oil of this scene. This is very iconic. Uh, I noticed uh, the armored man's first line on this page is, Yon varlets bode ill. Yeah. I have no idea what that what that means. So uh, there, if we have any 400-year-old listeners, um, <laughs> they can they can comment on your Facebook page. We, we can, yes. I, I'll take a crack at it, right? Yawn is just um, they over there. Uh, yeah. Right? And I think a varlet is just like a rascal. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, bode ill is just bear, bearing you ill will, I think. But I think that this is really just the sort of like Robin Hood ease that audiences from the 40s would have expected. Yeah. All right, so um, fortunately, on the next page, Donald's gotten hungry and he asks for a tomato from their basket. Uh, finding it to be overripe, he tosses it backwards right into the armored man's face. He gives the old-timey um, swear odds bodkins, which I'm not convinced anyone actually said, but apparently is like <laughs> one of those blasphemy um, curses because it's like God's body. It's like a, a way of saying God's body. And uh, they, they realize that he's behind them. The armored man, he takes a slice at them but misses, and they have to scatter and hide themselves into the kelp. Um, the, the armored man's very frustrated, but at least he can kick their fire, their signal fire, into the sea. And this is a very, very quick but action-packed page that's very dramatic and satisfying to me. Yeah, lots of very uh, visual I like that uh, Donald probably would have thrown a rotten tomato into the guy's face if he had known the guy was there, but yeah. uh, he accidentally did it anyway. A little happenstance. And, and, you know, I'm just noticing on this read-through right now how cool it is that the armored man is generally drawn in silhouette until the last panel of the page as he's kicking the fire. His uh, the, the glare of the fire really illuminates him neatly in a way that just looks very cool artistically. Yeah. All right. Uh, there's a lot of detail on his armor. You can see all the little pieces on the on the arms, and there's different pieces on the chest. And right, um, the helmet has little flares on it, and um, yeah, even the sword has kind of a an interesting hilt on it. There's it would have taken quite a while to draw this guy in every frame. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And when you consider that he was doing two full length stories for this month's release. All right. So on the next page, um, the ducks are regrouping. Um, they figure out that he's left, and so they get back to their boat, and they cast a searchlight on him. 
um, not finding him anywhere. And, and then one of the nephews hears that creak again, and he turns the light onto the ship. And they do finally see the armored man going into a hole in the stern, um, which is the back of the boat, right? I think I probably learned that from this one. Oh, I learned that from uh, getting my canoeing merit badge at age 12. Excellent. <laughs> it's a, it's a but, pretty... Uh, the, the ducks here are also um, in uh, mostly silhouette. Uh, for the the top half of this page, so we just get their their outlines and their lit up eyes, of course, and then and then kind of a cool shot with their one of them's holding that that kind of hook pike sort of thing they use for the kelp, and one of them's manning the uh, searchlight. Yeah, that's right. It's a boat hook, which I learned from last week's episode or the the one previous Terror of the River, <laughs> and and it's a cool panel too where they're turning the light, the bottom left panel where they're like partially illuminated and partially yeah. partially darkened. Same thing with the uh, the armored man. All right, so they've they've realized they've pretty much figured everything out right now, right? Donald snaps and it kind of represents the audience knowing everything. So um, finally, now that we've got everything, I think Barks decides that we can flash down into the armored man's hideout where he's loading, he's reloading his uh, old timey gun and talking with Dewey, who refers to him as Jingle Joints, and what a mess of trouble he got himself in when he kidnapped him. Um, and uh, the armored man says, Verily, they, thee saith a bookful, another line that I really like. And so they light another signal fire. They're getting ready for the morning. And Donald says, okay, well, now we, we know we've got to get past the ship. So we've got to think of a way to get past the octopus. And by the time low tide comes around, one of the nephews, uh, Huey, says that he's got a plan. He's rolling um, a large slab of meat full to the brim with chili pepper, saying that that'll get rid of the octopus. Seems like a good plan. It does. Yeah, I also like that line from the armored man. That was good. Just like, man, this is a lot harder than it was 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Old timey um, speak for, uh, you're, you're not kidding. Yeah, yeah. Also, uh, this issue provides some practical knowledge on how to defeat a kaiju if ever you're uh, confronted with a 200 uh, foot tall monster. That's right. Yeah, because the, um, the chillified meat is going to turn out to be very effective. They use the tongs to hop, uh, to drop it into the hatch. And they hear him eating it. And then we get just this spectacular, I, I don't know, maybe this is divisive, but I, I absolutely love this panel of the octopus rising in spicy agony from the ship, utterly <laughs> obliterating it. It's a, a full half page. There are seabirds um, fleeing the devastation. There's a great expression on the octopus's face. And uh, the nephew says, uh-oh, I must have used to sprinkle too much pepper. And when I read this at age either seven or eight, I was I was pretty much howling with laughter between this one and the next panel. Um, I I do think this is probably a moment of levity that Barks you know stuck in because he wanted to diffuse this pretty creepy story. But uh, but I just I love it so much. Yeah, it's definitely a, a memorable frame. I also uh, yeah, it's definitely a, a memorable frame. I also. Uh, didn't notice until we're reading it now uh, that he's finally doing some like half page splashes instead of just eighth of a page, eighth of a page, eighth of a page. Here's some uh, exposition. He's uh, taking some time to kind of uh, savor some of the visuals. Yeah, they're few and far between, but sometimes he does get to push the medium. 
Okay, so on the next page, um, we get our last glimpse of the octopus using his tentacles to, to run away um, over, over the reef, and one of the nephews gets off the great line. I wonder what he'd give for a ton of ice cream. Um, and this has left the entrance exposed. The uh, grotto has a trap door on it that they figure is locked from below. Um, you know, they can open it with the tongs, but uh, the nephews are out of ideas. But Donald's got one now. He says he's got a plan and that all he needs is a squirt gun and a couple of mice. So they find a single mouse from in the galley. The nephews are very surprised that that's all he wants to combat the armored man. But um, Donald takes a look at the growling mouse and says that he likes the glint in, in his eyes. And he takes uh, the squirt gun filled with roach powder and he heads off and uh, just a really cool line from the nephew so I'm going to read it in its entirety going to battle an armored man with a squirt gun and a mouse do you suppose Uncle Donald's in his right mind I hope not his sensible ideas never work so Donald arrives at the trap door and asks the nephews to open it um, and he's getting ready to squirt the man with the um, roach powder but he comes up with a with a gun instead of a sword like Donald expected. Donald is able to duck the shot in the nick of time. He squirts the armored man with the powder and he falls clattering into the grotto and uh, Donald um, drops down with the mouse who he has nicknamed Montmorency. Which, again, just a great little random touch. The, the, the ferocious mouse that's snarling in his cage. The armored man, of course, is wielding... It's like a blunderbuss. It's not even uh, any kind of gun that we would have seen in the last two or three hundred years. Uh, the, big, the big kind of bell uh, at the end, like a, like a trumpet. I guess it's a kind of musket, but... Um... Uh, I also thought it was interesting uh, to see a small realistic looking mouse in a Disney comic uh, in, in theoretically the same world that Mickey Mouse lives in. And I, I wondered about the, the laws of this universe again. <laughs> and again, it's just for a Barks fan, it's just something that's total background. You'll probably stop thinking about it another uh, five to ten issues in. <laughs> so um, while the man is distracted, you know, with the agony of the roach powder in his eyes, Donald um, drops Montmorency in and says, in you go, it's your job to get out. And the armored man freaks out. He says, a demon is loose in my armor. Um, he's removing his helmet. We see that he's kind of a feeble old man. Um, there's a panel where Donald yells at him, take it off, take it off, take it off. And I've got to say, I'm kind of surprised that that one hasn't been picked up as some kind of a meme. Because out of context, it's it's pretty funny. Um, so the armored man does remove all his armor, and uh, he comes to his senses as Donald is standing with his uh, musket, his sword, and behind his cannon, and says, "Now we face each other on even terms, Sir Boiler Shirt." And uh, as a final touch, Montmorency snarls. Very fearsome, tiny mouse. I have to say, uh, this this was immediately reminiscent to me of uh, my favorite musical number from another Disney property, Phineas and Ferb. There is an early episode uh, in which um, Phineas and Ferb's older sister is trying to be on a date, and uh, her nemesis has croqueted some acorns into her pants, and two squirrels immediately dive into her pants and run around the inside of her pants to try and find the acorns. And then we have a 
yes, a fantastic two-minute number called Squirrel in My Pants, done by two, two freestyle rappers who happen to be there in the park and think that she metaphorically has some squirrels in her pants, and that's why she's dancing so awesome. Uh, and she actually moves a lot like this guy. Like, it's it's kind of the same. I guess it's the universal way of indicating. Uh, I have small mammals inside of my trousers. <laughs> that's true. I wonder. This is, this is how a person moves. <laughs> it is a, it is a Di- another Disney property, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. What are their names? Uh, Swampy and uh, trying to remember the Phineas creators. Dan Povenmire. That's right. And uh, Jeff mm-hmm. Marsh, right? Maybe mm-hmm. uh, maybe they were big Barks fans. Who knows? That is extremely plausible. Yeah. All right. So um, on the next page, you know, everyone is reunited. They've rescued Dewey. And the armored man is despairing. What's going to become with him? What is his lord, Sir Francis Drake? What will he think of him? And um, he reveals that he was safeguarding a treasure and he didn't keep the gold safe. Um, Donald sees the the gold and he starts to drool over it and they hear his story because of now now of course they can um, they reveal you know they the ducks figure out that this guy thinks that Sir Francis Drake is still alive and um, they kind of all sit around the lantern and he explains how you know a ship was washed over this reef and had crashed into the cavern above. Um, and that the captain of the ship ended up staying to guard the treasure, or the, the sole survivor, rather, stayed to guard the treasure. Um, this is on to the next page. He brought the treasure down into the cavern and waited for Sir Francis Drake to return, but as the years passed and he got older, he um, decided to uh, embark on the kidnapping that wound up being passed down from generation um, to generation of armored man. Every 50 years, someone would kidnap another boy off the local island. And so the secret of the kidnappings is out. Uh, there's a, another great Donald line on here. <laughs> there's a couple of them. All, everyone's starting to talk like him now. Uh, on, the pre- on the previous page, the, the nephews used the term odds bodkins now. Uh, and on, on this page, Donald asks if the armored man was the sole survivor of the crash 400 years ago. And he says, no, uh, the captain was. Uh, and uh, Donald says, thanks. Now I can start believing ye calendar again. Yeah, yeah, that was... Uh, I, I'm glad that this is not some kind of immortal being that is <laughs> yes. living inside the ship. That's a good catch, because that is also one of my favorite quotes in this one. All right, so um, the secret is out. This has become sort of a generational curse rather than a supernatural one. Um, Donald takes a quick moment to act like he is Sir Francis Drake, uh, but the guy's like, no, it's not you. I've got a picture of him in this book. So Donald isn't able to get the gold. Um, we transition pretty quickly to uh, the ducks being feted as heroes on the island for stopping this sort of generational curse. Donald asks after the gold, um, but the guy who's presenting him to the key, the key to the city, the, the mayor, says, sorry, by salvage rights, you know, the gold belongs to the man who is guarding it. And uh, in the last panel, Ryan, why don't you tell us about the last panel? Uh, he's at Tony's Burger Palace, which appears to be kind of a, an outdoor diner or a food truck or something. Uh, and he's in some ridiculous clothes. <laughs> this is how I would think of, like, uh, a very ostentatious billionaire being dressed in maybe the 20s or the teens, I would say. Uh, and he's in some 
very uh, garish clothing with a like a pocket chain and a wide pink hat and very pointy shoulders on his on his jacket and then just a big open sack of gold coins right next to him on the stool. <laughs> he says, another of ye hamburgers, scullery knave. They taste mighty good, mighty with an E at the end, good with an E at the end, after an half century of ye fish. And we get the nice little capper that it is ye end. And yes. so that is um, that is the ghost of the grotto. Um, I, I know I've been effusing over this one because I love this story. Almost everything about it works for me. You know, there's just a couple of like parts that like, it's not quite a perfect story, but um, to me, this is some of, of Barks at its best. I'll talk about that in a minute. But, but you know, I'm, I'm curious just right off the bat. Like, what do you think of this one? Uh, I love it. This, this might be my new favorite one. Um, I like, uh, I like a little mystery. I like that our good guys are good guys and they, you know, use their cleverness to kind of, um, uh, overcome the, the bad guy and then solve the mystery and resolve the conflict. I thought it was interesting. Uh, this is the first, this is the first one I've read that involves a large pile of gold of the many that we've read so far that involve a large pile of gold where Donald did not end up with the gold. He is... He has a key to the city and the thanks of the all the people whose kids are not getting kidnapped now. And uh, he just has to be grumpy knowing that he's a hero instead of a rich hero. But uh, yeah, I liked the bad guy. I liked that the bad guy wasn't even like uh, evil. He just thought it was his duty, you know, to... Yeah, it's but, like uh, a legacy. Yeah, yeah. I like that it was all in one spot. Uh, I like the kind of elements uh, and the artwork. I like the giant octopus and just kind of um, trying to beat each other with very limited resources. I mean, this guy just has whatever was on the boat 400 years ago. And then Donald has whatever happened to be on his boat when they went out to go get some kelp for the day. And uh, that's uh, the nature of their combat. <laughs> that's true. It's like a, a really good matching of wits. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that you liked this one. This one is um, just, to me, some of the best of Barks. You know, I, I love the setup. As you say, it's really tight. Even if this came out of like a different sort of um, comic 10-pager setup, I feel like it's very organic how it starts out. I love the setup at the beginning where you kind of just hear these rumblings in the background. You know, it sets it up very suspensefully and... Uh, those like conversations about the missing boys um, make for a really great element of, of creepiness. And, um, you know, there are, there are some very silly parts, but this is a deeply dark story, right? I mean, it's about kidnappings that obviously ruined a half dozen or so lives over the course of hundreds of years. And, um, you know, the subtext is that these kids were like brainwashed into this, basically. Over, over the centuries and grew up with this like horrible legacy. So um, I like that the armored man gets his sort of freedom at the end. Um, I think the humor in this is really great. I think my only real criticism, I did feel like the ending was just a little bit too abrupt in this one. You know, the little transition to the hamburger stand, it happens pretty quick. Um, but otherwise, I, I, I would call this one a masterpiece. And um, fortunately, uh, the users of the Index site would agree with me. You know, um, we always check Index to see what that user-generated um, score average is. This one is rated very high. This one gets an 8.0 out of 10 as of right now. Um, good for 41st place out of over 40,800 
Disney comics. Um, this is our first top 50 story, in fact, out of the 500-some Bark stories. This is um, top. This is the top 32nd of all the Barks and the top 41st overall. So we're, we're high into the 99.9th percentile here. Um, this is a beloved Barks adventure that really does set the tone for a lot of the stories that are going to follow. Um, and any other thoughts about just the sort of, um, you know, how the story is before I talk about some other reflections and how it holds up and the other media? Um, yeah, it's just, uh, like, I can tell it was very well thought out. And it's not, like, tropey, you know what I mean? It's not like, oh, this this old thing again. They switched bodies because they both touched a mystical object at the same time or whatever. Like, uh, this is a really interesting uh, narrative, you know. And, uh, and I think it tells it really well. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, it's set on a good, um, it, it just has such a good setup and a good flow. Um, I would say that this one also holds up very well. You know, there's not really a lot that's uh, kind of retrograde or problematic about it. Um, you know, I, I, I guess this is before kind of the stranger danger era where I think, you know, people would probably look in askance at a, a kidnapping plot like this. But um, but in general, this this holds up very well. The only thing that's kind of archaic is kind of our understanding of of Middle English, right? I don't know if you're aware of this, but um, the use of ye, do you know why that's historically incorrect? Uh, yes, uh, it's because uh, there was uh, the letter thorn, right? That, it, that is to make the 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 sound at the beginning of the word the. Uh, and when it's written, it looks to our modern eye like a Y. And so you and I happening upon it would look at it and say, oh, that looks like a ye. And so we, we thought that everyone was talking like that back then, but they would have just said the or the, the way we do, and, and written down in a way that looks like a ye. Exactly. That's exactly right. Very well said. And so, you know, we have a lot of like European and other international listeners. Um, and and I'm, I'm curious how they represent in the translation sort of this archaic speech. But this is sort of signaling to us when we see ye old, we know that it's supposed to be old timey. But really, it would be pronounced the old. And in my own kind of mental gymnastics for justifying this, I, I would say that over the generations, as the, there's been this sort of passing on this burden um, that you know, maybe one of the kids was taught out of a book or something, and he could have made that kind of mistake and started to pass on the uh, the old yees um, speak, speaking. So anyway. That's true. Yeah, this is not actually a, a figure from the 1600s. He, he played a game of telephone for 400 years. That's right. Think, uh, he's at the end of it. <laughs> exactly. Um, so appearances in other media, as I mentioned, this was a story that Barks did do an oil painting for. Um, it's well worth looking up. It's, it's beautiful. It shows the man um, walking out of, the, out of the sea behind the ducks um, about to strike. And it's, it's a very well-known painting of his. Um, I think it was done in miniature. The, one of the covers for this was an adaptation of that. I'll have to share that one with you, and I'll put it up on the Facebook page. I'm not aware of any other use of the Armored Man or any references in DuckTales or anything. Um, I did see, I, I considered this one to be a very educational one in some ways. You know, just learning about um, kelp being turned into iodine was, was educational for me. I saw some of the mechanics of how tides worked in this, a lot of those great nautical terms. 
Um, some of the archaic terms that are used are actually accurate. I liked the use of like, how be it, as uh, an ad adverb in the English. Um, so again, this is just a masterpiece. Uh, do you want to nominate a favorite panel um, or talk about any of them as your choice? Um, I think uh, I think my favorite panel um, might be when uh, Donald goes up to the hatch with his um, roach spray loaded up in his squirt gun and the hatch pops open with the armored man and his blunderbuss. He kind of consumes the front half of Donald's face with it. <laughs> Donald is is halfway halfway into the end of the blunderbuss there and says, uh-oh, I expected you to pop up with a sword. <laughs> I just like the, just kind of the, um, he is in mortal danger, but he's still not losing losing his, uh, his senses, you know? He's still in kind of control of the situation. Uh, he was surprised. He's a little off balance. He's going to figure out how to recover from this. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like your favorite panel choices. You have some of the, like, uh, less conventional ones. You know, I'm very drawn yeah. towards the showy panels, and um, I, I really do have to go with the ones that are obvious, you know, the one with the armored man illuminated after he gets off the ship for the first time. It's, it's very showy. It screams to, to be recognized, but I'm, I'm a sucker for that panel. And then, um, you know, as you heard me waxing on about the, um, the octopus erupting from the ship, that, that is another great one. But but this would one be, uh, when the when the three of them try to look down the cavern at the same time when Dewey shouts up and they all plunk their heads together that was pretty good yeah that's a fun moment excellent um, well thank you again so much for uh, joining me for this one I'm glad I'm glad that you've got a new favorite this one um, is now the highest rated that we have talked about. Um, I don't think it's going to be for very long because we're about to enter kind of a a very classic, very rich period of Bark's work. But um, yeah, there's a lot to look forward to here. Um, coming up next episode, we are going to be talking about Adventure Down Under. And um, again, to, to listeners, I'm, I'm just really grateful. I've gotten some nice notes recently um, about the show, and we are picking up some steam and getting a lot of international listeners and uh, i'm just i'm so grateful for everyone who gives this a listen so again thanks for joining us uh, if you have any thoughts or comments you can drop us a line at barksremarks at gmail.com you can also find us on facebook and uh, we will hopefully see you or you will hear from us soon